1 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray before we get into the word. Father, this is your time. This is your word. We've set it aside to hear from you. Would you speak to us? Lord, you know right where we're at in our life. You know right what we need to hear. So may this morning be the morning that you just ministered to us, perhaps like you never have before. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter is, we're going to be looking, oh, by the way, we're going to be looking at verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. And Peter is writing this letter to a group of people who are being persecuted, or at the very least, the threat of persecution is very imminent and very real. Many of the readers have already been forced, for their, forced from their homes. They're scattered in surrounding areas. Perhaps they've witnessed many family members or friends or fellow believers already have been martyred for their faith. And in this morning's verses, we're going to see that Peter comes alongside them and he wants to encourage those believers. And he also wants to challenge those believers. They're literally in fear for their lives. He will encourage them to do good even in the face of persecution even in the difficult times, even in the hardship. And he will challenge them to set the Lord apart in their hearts, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within them and to live with a good conscience. Finally, Peter will remind his readers that Jesus also suffered for doing good. The recipients of this letter are living day to day. They don't have the security that we have here in the United States of America. They don't know what tomorrow holds. They're not sure what it could bring. And Peter has already told them thus far in the letter to be of one mind, to have compassionate for one another, to love one another as brothers. He's told them to be tenderhearted, to be courteous, and not to exchange evil for evil. But instead to bless those who are showing you evil and to remember that you have been called to this. There is something that God is doing through this. He reminded them, which we need to be reminded of too, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the Lord hears their prayers. It's in times of persecution, times of difficulty that we often reach out to the Lord and those that are his, he hears their prayers. The reality for suffering in this world is real. It should not be feared, but it should be faced with the Lord sanctified in your hearts a readiness to give defense for the hope that lies within you and with a good conscience. You see, most of us can't relate to the suffering, to the persecution that the first century Christians were, relate, were, were enduring. But it doesn't mean that we don't have difficulty. It doesn't mean that we don't have problems. And if the principles and the things that Peter's going to teach them to deal with persecution where they might be martyred for their faith will work for them, if it's, this is what God said to do in this situation, Shouldn't we then take that and apply it to our daily life in our difficult situations? I think it would make perfectly sense to do that. Perfectly good sense to do that. Let's pick up in verse 13 as Peter continues addressing these persecuted saints who are enduring these real life-threatening situations. Verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. Peter begins by asking a question. Who will harm you if you are zealous to do good? If you're focused on doing good, who's going to come against you? Why would somebody want to cause you harm if you're focused on doing what is right? If you're helping people, if you're submitting to the government like he's told them to, if you're serving those who are over you, why would they want to harm you? In most cases, they wouldn't. They're going to be blessed by the work that you're doing. However, Peter says, even if they do harm you for doing good, because the truth is it happens. You could be harmed for doing good. They were being harmed for doing good. Peter said, what? You are blessed. You're blessed. You're blessed. If you're suffering unjustly, can you know this morning that God will care for you? That there's a blessing to be had in that? You will be rewarded in eternity. If you are suffering unjustly this morning, if you feel that you're being wrongly accused of something and you've done nothing wrong, it's not, not, you've done nothing but good, can you just take comfort in the fact that you're going to receive a reward for suffering unjustly for Christ's sake in eternity? You will get it in eternity. It's, it's not, it doesn't go without being noticed. And he says the presence of threats or suffering should not make us afraid. Have you ever been afraid? I'd be a missionary, but something might happen to me. I'd go, I'd go serve the Lord here or there or wherever, but I'm worried about what might happen. No, we shouldn't be that way. We don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't live our life based on fear. We know that the Lord's in control of all things. Let me see if I can summarize this little section for you another way. If you choose to do good in hard times, who can really harm you? If they're doing, someone's coming against you and you choose to do good, who can really harm you? Oh, people might hurt you, physically, which is what was happening there in the first century, but they can't harm you. They might tie you to a tree and set you on fire. Well, that's terrible. Well, that's what they were doing to the Christians in the first century. That's terrible. They hurt them, but they didn't harm them. They hurt them. They might throw them to the lions and let them be eaten. That's what was happening. Yes, it hurt physically. It hurt them, but it didn't harm them. You know why? Because their hope is in heaven. All they did was get them to their eternal destination quicker. All they did was bypass. They just took this life and ended it and cut it off shorter for them. You say, well, Rob, that's kind of a morbid thing to think about. Those who live for heaven, with an e those that are living for heaven, we have an entirely different perspective on this world than someone else. You see, our happiness, our joy, our peace, it doesn't come from how we feel in this world. It doesn't matter what the world throws at us. If we're living for earth, when our life's not easy, when our life's not comfortable, when our life's difficult or there's persecution, we're unhappy, we're miserable. But those that have an eternal mindset, we look at this life and go, you know what, this is only temporary. And you can do whatever you want to me. You can, I can get sick, I can get disease, I can have difficulty, but it's only going to last so long. There's coming a, time and, a point in time where it will end. They, they can only usher you into the place that you ultimately desire to be quicker. Think about that. Now, do you have an eternal perspective? Or is your focus on being comfortable in this world? Getting all that you want here to make yourself happy. I'm not saying don't enjoy the things of the world. God has given us the world to enjoy. Enjoy the outdoors. Enjoy things. But where's your main focus? Where's your eternal perspective? If you find yourself in the situation where you're suffering for doing good or you're being persecuted for Christ's sake, you find yourself going, God, why is this happening to me? Because we all ask that question, don't we? We think somehow because at some point we gave our life to Christ, now we are entitled to something from him and we get to determine how he blesses us. 
and what we think is right and what is wrong for our life. And if he does what we think, if he, allow, if he allows what we think is the wrong thing, we get all upset at him. How dare you, Lord? Don't you know that I, I put money in the offering box last week? How dare you, Lord? I, I, I went to church three times last month. We feel like we're owed something in return. And all he could say back is, I died on the cross for your sins. I died for you. However, if we find ourselves in persecution, if you find yourselves in difficulty, and please remember that the Bible wasn't just written to those people here in the United States of America. It's hard for us to imagine true persecution. We can only read stories about it. We can connect with some, but we really haven't. Most of us, I would be willing to say, have not endured. Most of us have never spent a night in prison for our faith in Jesus Christ. Most of us have never taken a beating like the Apostle Paul, or like the many other people across the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't understand that. But like I said in the beginning, we do suffer. And if what Peter's about to tell them is going to get their mind right to endure persecution, it should work for us as well. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's number one. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, and having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Paul tells them that would, those that would find themselves in persecution, he says, I want you to do these three things. Here's what I want you to do. Number one, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Number two, I want you to always be ready to give a defense to everyone for the hope that lies within you. Number three, I want you to have a good conscience. Or a clear conscience. Let's look at those this morning. What does it mean to sanctify the Lord in your hearts? The word sanctify, it means to set apart. To set apart. It's to give the Lord a special place in your heart. To give the Lord the highest place in your heart. Other manuscripts render this phrase, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, as sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, I am taking the Lord. I realize that he died on the cross for my sins. He is going to become, he is going to hold the highest position in my heart or in my life. He's the one that occupies that space. G. Campbell Morgan explained it this way, and I think it was beautiful. He said, the simple meaning of the injunction is that at the very center of life, there is to be one Lord, and that is Christ. When other lords, lowercase l, are permitted to invade the sanctuary of the human heart and to exercise dominion over us, like our own selfish desires, like the opinion of others, worldly wisdom, the pressure of circumstances, these and many other lords, lowercase l, command us and we turn away our simple and complete allegiance to our one Lord, capital L. You see, there's many other things vying for control of your life. There's many other things that the, the, the world wants to tell you one thing. The Bible wants to tell you another. Where, what, who occupies that position in your heart? Who is set apart? What idea? What principle? What, what person? What is it that, set, that holds the highest position in your heart? He tells us there to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. And I, you know what? That's not just a one-time thing. You don't just do that when you're eight years old. I, I went forward and prayed the prayer and God, you know, and I sanctified. No. You've got to do that every day. Every time something comes in, every time the, the enemy wants to say something to you, every time you watch a TV show, sometimes you've got, got to re-sanctify him. My, mind's, my heart's on something else. I've got to reset him apart. It's something we are constantly doing as believers. 
because there's all these different things that want to vie for that position in our life. And he also says, number two there, we must always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And don't miss the last part. This is our attitude with meekness and fear. If we are following Christ and we are suffering persecution or we are enduring difficulty, maybe it's physical difficulty, maybe it's verbal difficulty by someone, maybe it's, it's health-wise, whatever it is, our attitudes should be in meekness and in fear. Meekness and in fear. And the word for fear, it means profound respect or reverence. It doesn't mean like knee knocking, like I'm scared to death. It means I'm going to even respect the one that is coming against me. I'm going to do it with meekness and respect. And when they ask you, why are you not angry at God? Why are you not bitter? You're a Christian. Can't your God protect you? We should be ready to tell them why and how we're able to suffer in such a way. This is how I can endure what I'm enduring. When they ask about the hope that is within us, we should be prepared with an answer. It's the perfect opportunity to share Christ. It's within us. I love it more than anything, and I've heard it so many times from believers who have suffered illness and then gone into the hospital to get treated for the illness, and they realize, I'm only here to minister to somebody else. I'm, I, yes, I'm sick and I'm getting treated, but you know what? God is using this illness in a way now I am sharing, I'm sharing my faith with everybody else in the cancer society because they don't have the hope that I do. And I can endure it with a smile because no matter what happens, if he heals me miraculously, if he heals me through medicine, or if he doesn't heal me at all, I'm going to be with the Lord. It doesn't matter. Do you, do you see how that, that eternal perspective changes our outlook on how we look at life? We have to keep that in mind. I think the key here is to be ready. To be ready. The definition of this phrase is preparation both in the active sense, in other words, making ready, and in the passive sense, I'm standing by. I'm ready to be ready. I'm, I'm, I'm on call. I'm waiting. I'm not making it happen, but I'm, I'm waiting for it. I'm ready. Are you ready to share the hope that lies within you? If I were to walk over you to this morning, and I'm not going to do it, so don't get all nervous, and hand you a microphone and say, tell us why you're here. Tell us why you're a Christian. Could you do it? I'm not, it doesn't have to be eloquent. Could, could, you, could you list out the reasons? Could you tell somebody why you're enduring what you're doing? Why did you move halfway across the country to Cumberland, Maryland? Why did you do this? Why, can, can you tell them? To, it's the hope that you, you did it because the Lord, the hope, there's a hope there. Tell them why. When you share the gospel, are you prepared? I've said it many times. I'm going to say it again. Americans, especially Christians, we are overpreached and undertaught. We can go to church and hear preachers preach all day long, but when it comes to God's word, we don't understand what it means and we don't know where to find it. We don't know how to apply it to our lives. I'm only one guy. That's why we teach chapter by chapter, book by book, because I want you guys to be educated. And I believe that I can stand up here and as I educate you, I teach you in God's word. I'm not saying other churches don't. I don't know what they're doing. That's up to them. But I can then say that, you know what? The purpose of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I can tell you and testify that in our church, many, many people are using the gifts that God's given them. They're, they've been equipped, empowered, and they are doing ministry. Not everyone's going to be a pastor or a missionary, but they're using their gifts. I remember... Pastor Sandy Adams telling a story about his brother. He has a brother named Ken who was witnessing on the street. He decided he's going to go share the gospel on the street one day. And he approached a man who was wearing a turban and a long robe and thought, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to convert him to Christ. I'm going to bring him to Christ. And when Ken started to tell the man about Jesus, this guy, he was prepared. He was prepared. He was ready. 
Instead, he took the conversation. He began quoting scripture to Ken. But you know what he did? He twisted it. He twisted it and he applied it and took it out of context. And he ended up painting Ken back into a corner. He cornered him. He didn't know what to say. And finally, the man with the turban and the long robe reached into his pocket. He pulled out a New Testament Bible and he waved it in Ken's face. And he asked Ken this question. He said, how did David kill Goliath? With no answer, the man turned around. And as he began to walk away, he answered his own question. He said, he killed him with his own sword. In other words, you don't even know the gospel you're trying to tell me. I know the Bible better than you do. And I don't even believe it. As Christians, we have an obligation to understand God's word. And we have to be ready We might not know it perfectly. We don't all have to go to seminary. We don't have to go to Bible college. But we need to be able to know this is why the hope that's in me. This is why I do what I do. This is why I live my life the way that I do. Ken realized at that moment that he wasn't prepared to give a defense for his faith. He took it upon himself to get prepared. And from what I understand, I don't know Ken. I've never met him, but he did. So this would never happen again. In your preparation to be ready and in your delivery when the time comes please don't neglect the attitude Peter mentioned meekness and fear too often we're ready to give an account but we're going to zing them we want to prove how smart we are we want to argue them we want to paint them into a corner to where they have nothing to say but Peter says no no it's meekness and in fear in other words respect I'm not disrespecting, I'm not arguing, I'm not raising my voice, I'm not hollering, I'm just simply sharing the reason for the hope that lies within me. You see, that's the part that you already know. You already know the hope that lies within you. You just have to let it come out. You just have to be able to, the the truths of God's word that speak to you, it's already there in your heart. You just have to know, this is why, this is why. This is my hope. You don't have to be the Bible scholar in this. It's not about winning an argument, it's about defending your actions to the glory of Christ. Why can you endure difficulty? Why can you endure persecution? Why am I paying you evil and you're repaying me with good? Why are you doing that? It's because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Because he repaid you good for evil. He gave you new life. He gave you eternity. Because I understand this world is only temporary. You see, anytime you get a chance to share the gospel, don't ever forget the Holy Spirit's doing his part. He'll be convicting of sin all along the way. Lastly, Paul told them and us, he said, have a good conscience. Why, Paul? Why do we need to have a good conscience? He tells you right there, so that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, they may be ashamed. There are, those will, there are people that will hate your good conduct. They're going to hate the fact that you act like a Christian. It will stand in stark contrast to their evil conduct. You'll be light, they'll be dark. In order to combat their shame, they may try to defame you. They may say things about you. They may talk about you. But when you don't break, when you don't zing them back, when you don't throw it up in their face, when you don't return evil for evil, you know what it ultimately does to them? It makes them ashamed. That's what he's saying here. A clear conscience allows believers to be free from any burden of guilt. As they face, hostali- as they face hostility and criticism from the world. An impure conscience is not comfortable and is unable to withstand the stress that comes from difficult trials and persecutions. 
Let me repeat that for you. A clear conscience allows believers to be free from any burden of guilt as they face the hostility and criticism from the world. But an impure conscience is not comfortable and is unable to withstand the stress that comes from difficult trials and persecutions. Your conscience is the divinely placed internal mechanism that either accuses or excuses a person acting as a means of conviction or affirmation. What does your conscience tell you? In other words, our conscience must be clear. Must be clear. Our lives must not be merely fronts. We can't just be, this is who I am in church and this is who I really am at home. We can't be one person when we talk to our friends, another person when we talk to our wife. We can't be one person on the outside putting up some sort of facade, but this is who I really am on the inside. Too often that happens in church. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect. I think church needs to be a place where we can go, you know what, I blew it this week. I need help, I need prayer, I need to come back to God's word, I need to get recentered in my life. It's not a place where I have to dress a certain way or be a certain way so everyone will still like me and if they realize I've blown it, they're going to kick me out. The only time you should ever get kicked out of a church is if you're unrepentant and you're living in habitual sin. If you're willing to repent, the church should always accept you. That's the place. The, the church should be a hospital. It should be a place where people that are broken and, 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 and they don't have anywhere else to turn. Too often we're a court where we judge people. We condemn them. Rather than meekness and respect, helping them, coming alongside of them. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Paul said, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men. How's your conscience this morning? Is it clear before God or are there some things that you need to work out with God? Well, we're going to have communion. You can do that in a little bit. Is it clear before men, or is there some things that you've got to work out with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or your husband or your wife? Is, it, is there something there that you've got to clear? Look at verse 17. For it's better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Suffering? Nobody wants to endure suffering, right? I don't think anybody, anybody that says, yeah, I want to suffer. There's something wrong with you. We don't want that. I want blessing. I want peace. I want happiness. I want joy in my life. But you know what? I know that sometimes I have to endure suffering. Because it's in those suffering times, in those difficult times, that I learn what joy and happiness really is and what peace really is. Happiness is not buying some new thing the world has to offer. Happiness is fulfilling God's will. Peace is doing what, being in the place that God called you to be, even in the middle of hardship where he says, I'll give you my peace. That's what it is. The presence or the possibility of suffering or persecution for doing good should not make us shy away from doing good. When we sanctify God in our hearts, we should always be ready to explain our faith. That means give a defense. And we should always do it with the right attitude, in meekness and in fear. In this section, Peter is essentially saying not all suffering is created equal. It's not. It's a noble thing to stand for Jesus and be persecuted. It's a noble thing. Yes, those of our brothers and sisters that are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, that suffer for Christ, that is noble. It's not the same as being shameful to suffer for an evil act that you did. As you suffer as a consequence of sin. That's a different kind. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the suffering that occurs because of you've done the right thing. Because you've done nothing wrong. Peter's telling us it's, it's better if it is the will of God. You mean suffering could be in the will of God? Sure it could be. Sure it could be. 
It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you ever find yourself suffering, whether it be for doing good or for doing evil, I want you to know that you're in good company. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. Christ suffered for sins. Whose sins? My sins. Your sins. Sometimes when we say our sins, or we, we make it plural, it needs to be my sins. Christ suffered for my sins, for your sins. He was the just. You're the unjust. He suffered. He didn't do anything wrong. But he suffered for your sins. Why did he endure this suffering? He told you right there that he might bring us to God. So he might bring you back into fellowship with God. Your sin separates you from God. I want to take that sin away. I want to cover it. It's nailed to the cross so that you can enjoy fellowship with the Father. That's what he's saying there. Bring us back to God to reconcile us with God. Yes, he was put to death in the flesh. He hung on a cross, was buried in an empty tomb, and he was raised the third day. But I want you to show you something kind of cool. Who raised him the third day? It says right there at the end of verse 18. He was made alive by the Spirit. Made alive by the Spirit, right? Made alive by the Spirit. He was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Here the Bible clearly teaches us that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. It says he's made alive by the Spirit. For those of you who like to find the Trinity in the Bible, for those of you who have been in the arguments and discussions, who are sharing the hope within you to someone who says there's no such thing as a Trinity, this is a great place to take them. You ask them this question. You say, who raised Jesus from the dead? There's going to be one of three answers. They're either going to say the Father, of the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Okay? And here it tells us the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. But I want you to listen as Romans chapter 6, verse 4 tells us that the Father raised him from the dead. It says this, Therefore we were, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. And in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, Jesus tells us that he raised himself from the dead. He raised himself. I'm just going to give you a highlight. The Jews came, they confronted him, and they said, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, of himself. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. So here we see in these three sections of scripture, the Father raised him from the dead, the Spirit raised him from the dead, and, and he raised himself from the dead. Now you reconcile it without a trinity. You see how it kind of works? It's all, it, which one was it, Rob? It was all of them because all three of them are one. They all raised him from the dead. It's, it's all three are one. 